Moses has been on the mountain for a long time. This is important to know before we hear our Exodus passage today. Moses has been away from the Israelite people who are waiting for him. He's been away for 40 days and 40 nights, which is a signal for a very long time. Why has he been away? Well, Moses has been talking with God up on the mountain, listening to God's orders and crafting a collection of lines and limits and laws for these people. And this collection of law is what is going to be known as the Torah throughout Jewish history. God is laying out rules, but these aren't rules like the Egyptians would put on the Israelite people. These are rules and plans that are intended to create a nation of fruitfulness, of meaningfulness, of order and balance. The Israelite people have willingly made a covenant with the Lord. They've entered into a sacred relationship. God has liberated them. God has guided them day and night through waters and wilderness. And so now God is getting to work on the next step to help them. God is giving Moses these laws to shape these liberated people into a new nation. And not just any nation, but a nation built on the vision of God, where the widow will be fed and the orphan protected, where the immigrant will be sheltered and labor will be meaningful and pleasure will be fruitful and worship will be central to each and every element of everyday life. God and Moses are hard at work on laws that will create a nation where every person will have a purpose and a place where there will be no one who is cast aside as pointless. God has great plans for the children of Abraham. And so Moses is up on that mountain for a very long time. And the people waiting below are starting to get a little antsy. The people are starting to get a little fidgety, a bit more annoyed and impatient every day. And so the people decide to take matters into their own hands. Let us listen to the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it 
and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that was awkward, wasn't it? (laughs) That was 30 seconds. That was half a minute. That was only 30 seconds of you looking around, waiting for me to say something, waiting for me to start speaking. That was only half a minute of awkward silence while you wasted your time wondering what the heck I was doing up here. I looked around. I didn't see any phones, but I don't... If we'd gone a couple more minutes, I think we would have pulled them out. So think about how fidgety you just got and stretch that out for 40 days and 40 nights. Imagine being the Israelite people. Imagine being the people waiting for Moses to return, to take charge, to say something important, to give some instructions. The people don't know what Moses is doing up on that mountain. They don't know what God is doing up there. They don't know that God is weaving plans that will make their lives fulfilled, meaningful, balanced. They don't know that all of this is happening in these very moments when they are feeling frustrated and impatient. They start to doubt that Moses is ever coming back. They start to doubt that the Lord is actually doing anything. They start to look around for something, anything, to entertain them. And so they decide to make a statue, offer it worshiping sacrifices, and throw a party. This is directly against God's command. God has told the Israelite people to promise never to worship graven images. Sacrificing to and worshiping around a concrete object will only tempt them into thinking that they can possess God. It will only seduce them into thinking that they can control the Lord of heaven and earth. No statues, no graven images. God has made this clear. 
But the people are getting antsy and impatient, and they don't want to wait around anymore. They are bored, and so they do the one thing that will hurt God the most. Their act of idolatry is actually quite ridiculous. There's a lot of ironic humor here in the text at the Israelites' expense. First, it's helpful to know that the bull was a common image used in the Middle East during this time. The bull was strong and tough, a sacred object of power and prowess, a symbol of military might and fertility. And so the people set out to make an idol, and instead of making a mighty bull, they make a calf, a baby calf. It's a bit of a joke. Instead of a mighty, powerful bull, they have created an adorable, helpless baby cow. You can almost imagine the Monty Python sketch. Also, the people don't carefully construct some intentional plan for sinful worship. In direct contrast to the time God is spending with Moses up on that mountain for weeks and weeks and weeks, the people throw together a sloppy party to the gods, literally, in the text, overnight. I can't help but think, if you've already decided to go against God's one big commandment, why don't you just go all out, really do the whole sinful work, really spend some time on just offering up any sin you can imagine? Instead, it is a mess. It is a mess of food and drink and revelry. They dance around their little calf. They make worship into a cruel and careless mockery. They end up looking ridiculous. And they end up breaking God's heart. God is hurt and full of wrath ready to be rid of these foolish, carelessly cruel people once and for all. Moses has to talk God off the ledge of annihilation, remind God of the legacy that these people come from, the legacy that they will be continuing. Moses negotiates with God, and God changes direction. Changing direction, that is worth a conversation and sermon series all on its own. When and how God changes direction, changes plans. What leads the Lord of heaven and earth to listen to our suggestions? This is worth a lot more reflection. But first, I want to focus on this moment, in this sermon, on one other small, simple, yet stunningly profound point. God gets hurt. God gets hurt by us. This is a big deal, and it sets Christianity and Judaism apart from so many other religions. This is a huge theological statement. We can focus so much on the idolatry of the golden calf or the idea of God's wrath, that we ignore the profound point in between that God, the mysterious one, the sovereign, the rock, the words that we poured out in our first hymn, this God can get hurt by us measly human beings. God cares for us with such an intensity that we are able to wound the Lord of heaven and earth. This is mind-boggling if we actually think about it, 
what the scriptures are revealing is that we do not worship one of the Greek gods, for instance, who play and prance around without regard to human beings and the consequences. We do not worship a deistic god who sets up the world to run like a machine and then checks out, steps back, and lets everything just keep going on its own. The scriptures reveal that we worship a present, personal, eminent God. We worship a God who has committed to us, who has made covenantal vows to us, who has chosen to enter into a relationship with us, even if that means we inflict hurt. And we worship a God who doesn't just get hurt, make a plan for our destruction, and then walk away. God lets Moses negotiate. God pauses, listens, and changes direction, decides to recommit to these people, to reinvest in their relationship, even when they hurt God. Indeed, even when we wound and enrage, even when we make a mess of things, even when we seem like the most foolish of investments, God continues to care for us with a fierce love that refuses to abandon us. The remarkable thing in this Exodus passage is not that the people strayed. The remarkable thing is that God continues to commit to these straying people. God continues to commit, care for, and invest in them. God continues to use these people for holy plans across the years, to make of them a great nation, to work with and through them these flawed human beings, these merely mortal hands and hearts. God continues to invest in these people as the means by which the world might be transformed into a vision of the heavenly kingdom. I wonder how it would shape our faith if we focus less on people's particular idolatry and focus more on the marvel of God's abiding faithfulness. I wonder how it would shape our daily life if we worried less about what might be wasting our time. And as Paul suggests, rejoice more. Rejoice more in how God is wasting time with us we who could be so easily seen as a foolish, foolish investment. Why should any of us invest in each other? Why should we invest in community? After all, in the ancient Israelites, we can see what a mess people, a gathering of people can make. And in the early Church of the Philippians, we can hear how even the most devoted of disciples, the two men, women that Catherine mentioned, can get caught up in conflict. Surely it always is easier just to cut ties and walk away, to protect our time, our assets, and our own interests. Why should we invest in each other, in church community? Why should we ever care about the work and worship that is possible with our hands and hearts and minds and spirits? quite simply, because God does. Because God invests in these hands and these hearts and these minds and these spirits. Because God brings forth gifts of the spirit that can transform the world 
when we least expect it. Because God can nurture strength even when we feel most weary, even when we are most depleted. Because God recommits to us even when we make a mess of things. One of my favorite Broadway musicals is the one that was staged here last summer at the Virginia Repertory Theater in the Heights. If you didn't see it, in the Heights is the story of a neighborhood in Washington Heights, New York City. It is a changing neighborhood, full for the last generation of Spanish-speaking citizens and immigrants. Before that, it was Irish workers. Now it is a neighborhood that is facing displaced residents, rising rent prices, and other aspects and signs of gentrification. The musical follows the story of several of its residents through the three hottest days in July. There is Benny, the idealistic businessman, Nina, the neighborhood darling who went off and struggled at Stanford, Danielle and Carla from the salon who are always snooping for gossip, and of course there is Usnavi at the center, who is the irrepressible, exuberant narrator telling us about all the people that we are watching and the place that we are seeing. Usnavi was brought to this country, to New York City, as a baby by his parents from the Dominican Republic. His parents have since died, and he now runs the family bodega, a corner market. He gives work to his young cousin, Sonny, and he is taking care of Abuela Claudia, the neighborhood matriarch. Usnavi and the Abuela Claudia often dream about going back to the islands where they came from, having drinks on the beach far away from the macadam and concrete and bright lights of the city. Although it is told in Spanish and with many hip-hop lyrics and raps, Usnavi's story is not that different from George Bailey's in the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Both feel trapped by the family business, Both have dreams of traveling far away, of exploring and enjoying the world. Both receive a chance to leave, but when the moment stares them in the face, they look around and make other choices. In the beginning, Usnavi looks around at all the people in his life, and he feels trapped. He describes himself as a streetlight, rapping, "'Yes, I'm a streetlight, choking on the heat.'" The world spins around while I'm frozen to my seat. The people that I know all keep on moving down the street. But every day is different, so I'm switching up the beat because my parents came with nothing. They got a little more, and yes, we're poor, but at least we've got the store. It's all about the legacy they left with me. It's destiny, and one day I'll be on the beach with Sonny writing checks to me. The musical unfolds with a mixture of fun, poignant, and energetic moments. And in the middle of the story at night, after the power has gone out in their neighborhood and the residents have sung the chorus, We Are Powerless, Usnavi sits with his grandmother. He is nursing a bruised heart because his beloved crush has left him. He is facing a broken, ransacked store after the security gates failed to close in the blackout. He's sitting with Claudia on the fire escape because they can finally see the stars up above their heads, which the streetlights usually block. And then, in a surprise reveal, Abuela Claudia tells Usnavi that she has won the lottery, a windfall of $96,000. 
They are ecstatic. They start to make plans. Claudia wants to return to the Caribbean islands from which she had to flee as a girl. Usnavi finally feels freed from trying to keep his corner market open. They realize that they can call it quits on this tough life and take a plane far away, enjoying the vacation they've only ever dreamed about, perhaps even moving away permanently. Usnavi's dreams of escaping this corner finally seem to be coming true. And then the next morning, Abuela Claudia dies peacefully in her sleep. The whole neighborhood grieves, remembering how she helped to raise them all. Usnavi wanders around wondering, what's next? What is he supposed to do? He has been tired of this street corner, ready to cut ties, ready to leave it all behind and take off on a plane. But then in the final moments, Usnavi rises early in the morning and starts to rap. There's a breeze off the Hudson, and just when you think you're sick, you think you're sick of living here, the memory floods in. The morning light off the fire escape, the nights at Bennett Park blasting big pun tapes, I'm going to miss this place, to tell you the truth. Benny, dispensing wisdom from his dispatch booth, and at dawn, Vanessa at the salon. But we've got to move on. And who's going to notice we're gone? When the whole city is rich folks and hipsters, who's going to miss this raggedy little business? Usnavi seems to be searching for a reason to stay in on his street corner. And he gets a reason. When his young cousin, Sonny, unveils a project that he has been working on overnight. Sonny has commissioned the neighborhood street artist, Graffiti Pete, to paint a picture of Abuela Claudia on the side of the bodega building. Underneath is scrawled her mantra, paciencia y fe, patience and faith. Usnavi sees the image and he is overcome. With his beloved Abuela gazing down on him, he sees his market, his street corner, his role in relationship with the neighborhood in a whole new light. He realizes he cannot take the money and leave. He has to stay. He has to reinvest it in the store, reinvest it in the relationships in the neighborhood where he is right now. Even as the neighborhood is changing, even as the people feel powerless, Usnavi realizes that he has to be the one to commit to stay. He has to continue to care about this neighborhood full of immigrants to tell the stories of the relationships here. Same as at the beginning, Usnavi describes himself as a streetlight on a corner. But this time he says, Yes, I'm a streetlight, chilling in the heat. I illuminate the stories of the people in the street. Some have happy endings, some are bittersweet, but I know them all, and that's what makes my life complete. And if not me, who keeps their legacy? Who's going to keep the coffee sweet with secret recipes? Abuela, rest in peace. You live in my memories. But Sonny's got to eat. This corner is my destiny. Brings out the best in me. The musical ends with Usnavi standing in front of his raggedy little business, joined at his side by all his neighbors, looking out at the neighborhood and singing at the top of his lungs, I'm home. It can cost a lot to invest in the things of this world. 
to care about people that can hurt you, to spend time on relationships that can change, to invest in neighborhoods that are challenging. When we are faced with the mess of life, it can sound foolish to say you're investing in other human beings, that you're investing in the work and worship of a community of faith like this one. We are headed into stewardship season. Why invest in church? Why invest in each other? Why commit to making this particular community, this particular neighborhood, this city, this world, a place where a more loving vision can take root? Why reinvest and recommit to what is happening here and now? Because God did. Because God does. And because God will continue to do so, world without end. Thanks be. Let us pray. Holy One, you are present with us. You are bound to us willingly, lovingly. What can we give you besides our whole hearts, our whole lives? Take who we are, all the complications, all the messes, all the joys, and transform us into faithful disciples. In your holy, steadfast, faithful name we pray. Amen.